0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: If there is... If there is,
2: if there is sincerity in on your path... Free and open and frank dialogue, and that is what we will continue to have. We will continue to love to work constructively together,
1: but
3: there will be things we will disagree on. and You will have to Let's create the conditions first. Okay, there was some... a... <laughs> Weird, weird uh, situation. I can't think of anything else like it. So the G20, China's president, uh, Xi Jinping, publicly berating Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, over what he sees as Trudeau's leaking to the media of the details of their conversation. But, of course, that conversation involved an issue that was pretty important to Canadians, the extent of Chinese interference in Canada, or specifically in our electoral system, and concern that's emerged about possible Chinese uh, interference in the 2019 federal election. Now, the prime minister today was asked about that confrontation. Why do you think, though, I mean, why do you think he was so upset? What was the message that he was trying to get across to you? Do you think this was a power play of some kind? We know that China is uh, an important global player in uh, the economy and has a very big impact on events around the world. Canada needs to be able to engage uh, constructively and directly on areas we can work together while at the same time we continue to uh, be there to challenge on human rights, on values and principles that matter to Canadians. Uh, and look to advance the interests of Canadians. And this is something that we're going to consistently do in uh, a clear and hopefully a constructive way. Okay, so maybe this whole situation has been a wake-up call, or at least the revelations about what was going on in 2019, and whether China tried to interfere in our election. Because there have been warnings for a long time about the extent of Chinese interference and disinformation in Canada. Well, someone who's uh, followed all of this uh, very closely, uh, written much about the issue, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Marcus Kolga, uh, who is the founder and director of DisinfoWatch.org, also a senior fellow with McDonald laurier Institute's Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad, mcdonnell Marcus, good to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me on, Rob.
3: Well, I mean, it's it's quite a scene that we've we've seen play out here this week. Uh, you know, Canada pushing back on you know China's interference in Canada, being met with a pretty angry response. It seems from from China's president. What, what did you make of uh, what we saw here today?
1: Well, look, you know, autocrats like China, Russia, and Iran. Um, one of the things they don't like is being called out and yeah. having their influence and information operations targeting our countries. Exposed, and so when the prime minister uh, brings up at the very highest level, um, you know I think we can expect that sort of a reaction um, from President Xi. Uh, They they don't like being called out, and uh, and that's a form of intimidation. And and we've seen this happening uh, from the you know grassroots level, uh, China trying to intimidate uh, Canadians of Chinese descent uh, in Toronto, places like Vancouver, uh, in between elections, during elections. Um, and all the way up to, you know, clearly uh, the Prime Minister. So it's it's not surprising, but it is a good thing that uh, the Prime Minister is bringing this up at that level, um, you know, ho- trying to uh, call it out. But uh, what we need to start doing clearly with this uh, information that was reported by Sam Cooper a few weeks ago, uh, the interference in the 2021 election, that Disinfo Watch uh, was the first to report on. Um, we need to hold the Chinese government to account and all other authoritarians who try to interfere in our democracy and, uh, and those who try to Im- intimidate our, uh, our activists here
3: in Canada. So does this represent a bit of a sea change almost, that you know maybe we can fault the government for uh, dragging its feet on this or turning a blind eye to this? Something seems to have changed, right? There's, there's an acknowledgement yeah. that this is a problem.
1: Well, sure. Um, I mean, one of the things that I was uh, struck by in, in Sam Cooper's uh, initial report was that it took our intelligence agencies almost three years uh, mm-hmm. to brief uh, the prime minister. This interference that uh, CSIS was uh, briefing him on happened in 2019, and um, and that briefing with uh, the the prime minister didn't happen until January of this year. So uh, the first question I would have is, is why did it take that long uh, to put this information together to present to the prime minister and uh, i think one of the things that probably uh struck the prime minister and anyone else uh, in government is that uh, the chinese government uh, was not singling out a single party they weren't picking a, a horse in the race uh, in that in those elections they were targeting uh, apparently 11 uh, specific candidates from both the liberal and conservative parties and so, um, you know, this, this interference that they're engaging in with regards to that uh, 2019 election is, is quite broad. And it, it's not partisan by any means. And so, uh, you know, I think both parties, the opposition party, the government uh, should be uh, concerned. And, you know, I think this is something that we need to start taking immediate action on. We've been talking for years, or the government has been talking for years about potential Interference. We now see that it is it has been happening persistently for the past number of years. So action is immediately required as are consequences for those actors who are engaging in this sort of activity.
3: How do we make sense of this? Like, what what is China's end game here? Even if we look specifically at these two elections twenty nineteen and twenty twenty one, what what are they trying to do exactly?
1: Well, I mean, there are a number of things that they've been trying to do over the past number of years. Uh, one of the things that uh, they've been trying to do rather aggressively is to intimidate uh, critics of the regime uh, here in Canada. That means uh, Canadians of, of Chinese descent, Chinese speakers, um, their families uh, are intimidated, the, the, those who have families back in China, um, they're intimidated right here. They receive all sorts of phone calls uh, and other sorts of threats in order to silence them. So the, the Chinese government really is uh, trampling and violating the rights of, of Chinese uh, Canadians. Um, and this is, of course, to suppress criticism, but also they target the Chinese community here to uh, control them and um, and ensure that they support uh, the policies of, of the Chinese government. With regards to elections, uh, you know, they are trying to place uh, candidates, regardless of party, uh, into power. They are supporting them apparently, allegedly, with, with financing. Uh, the other allegation in, in Sam Cooper's report was that, uh, Chinese government agents, agents who are supportive of the Chinese regime are being placed in the, uh, campaigns of some of these, uh, these, uh, election campaigns. And, uh, and so the point there is to try and, uh, support those, uh, those candidates that are friendly to, to China. And, and the problem there, of course, is that um, they become conduits for the uh, chinese government and uh, and uh, ultimately you know they, they when when we hear about this and when this happens, it erodes broader general public trust in our democratic institutions and elections so it 's really a, a direct attack on our on our democracy
3: yeah it is you know and, and the side when it comes to monitoring or intimidating expats you know there's some revelations recently about you know the 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 possibility or the likelihood that uh, Chinese police have been operating illegally or secretly in Canada. They've got these clandestine police stations in in Toronto, it seems, or or elsewhere in Canada. That that sort of fits into that side of it, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, these are, uh, they're located, there's one apparently in Toronto, two in Markham, uh, these were identified by an NGO called safeguard defenders who who does a lot of they do a lot of work on defending uh, Chinese uh, human rights and human rights activists, but these were also brought up uh, by the u s government um, in in some charges that they laid against uh, some chinese uh, organizations uh, in, in in washington and uh, and so it's it's a, it's a near certainty that these police stations do exist the chinese government has Tried to justify them as as being there to um, give uh, Chinese Canadians the opportunity to renew their driver's license through in China, which seems a a, a, a a bit a bit silly and a bit strange, um, you know. And and from everything that we've uh, we've seen, all the reporting, uh, the report by Safeguard Defenders is is that these uh, police stations are used. As a headquarters for China's transnational repression against its own people, uh, it's against Chinese speakers and Canadians um, uh, here in in Toronto and and in Markham. So, um, not only are they trying to interfere in our uh, and are attacking our, our democracy through our elections, but they're also uh, somehow you know uh, actively working here with relative impunity um, to uh, to intimidate. Uh, canadians and this is something that needs to be immediately investigated by the rcmp Um, they've identified these reports have identified where exactly these police stations are and they need to be shut down and the owners of those buildings need to be investigated Uh, and if, if found guilty they you know they need to be if they're not canadian citizens they need to be ejected and otherwise they need to they also need to face consequences because this sort of attack on on canadians is completely unacceptable
3: What's the thing? And, and look, China's leadership needs to be called out, but it's not as though confronting them is going to you know, convince them to stop. So we do need to take some concrete steps to deal with this. Part of that, as you mentioned, is, is more aggressive when it comes to enforcement uh, yeah. and going after these these bad actors. But w- what else can we do?
1: Well, and that's a really great point. Calling them out is one thing. Um, authoritarians, uh, you know, we can call them out as long as we want, but as long as there are no real uh, consequences... When we're not holding them really to account, they'll just continue engaging in this sort of behavior. And so one of the tools that we do have are Magnitsky sanctions. These are sanctions that we can use to target specific human rights abusers, individuals who are engaging in this sort of intimidation. Um, and we can, if they have assets in this country, we can freeze them. Uh, and we should also, w- when we use those Magnitsky sanctions, it also bans those individuals from traveling to Canada. So this is one of the things that we can very easily and very quickly do. Um, the, the Canadian intelligence community, if they know that this sort of intimidation was having happening in 2019, if they know that this sort of int- interference was happening then, they probably have a good idea of which Chinese government agents were engaging and communicating with those campaigns. We should list those names immediately to demonstrate to the Chinese government that we mean business. And if this sort of thing happens again, we will be holding them to account.
3: We'll leave it there for now. Much more. As mentioned, McDonnell, Laurier.ca, disinfowatch.org. Marcus, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon.
1: Anytime. Thanks for having me on,
3: Rob. All the best. Marcus Kolga, founder and director of DisinfoWatch.org, senior fellow at McDonald laurier Institute, Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad. Uh, A follow-up story today from Global News investigative journalist Sam Cooper who broke the story about the CESIS briefing concerning Chinese interference in the 2019 election. Uh, Sam Cooper reports today a prominent businessman in Toronto's Chinese community is the subject of two separate investigations involving foreign interference both related to a series of briefings and memos that uh, Canadian security officials allegedly gave to the prime minister in January. CSIS has investigated this individual for his alleged role in a covert scheme that facilitated large fund transfers and to advance Beijing's interest in the 2019 election. According to the RCMP, RCMP sources, national security investigators are also probing him for possible links to several properties in Toronto and Vancouver allegedly used as so-called Chinese government police stations which are believed to secretly host agents from China's Ministry of Public Security. So an interesting overlap here of these two stories.
2: We're working very closely to ensure that they have the resources and supports that they need. Uh, that being said, it is very different right across the province, so there is not a one-size-fits-all um, for this situation
3: well, good afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program, folks. That was Alberta's Education Minister Adriana Lagrange asked today about the impact on schools of the widespread spread of respiratory illness and the number of kids that are away from school because they are sick. Now, the new Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Mark Joffe, just put a statement here this afternoon. It says over the last few weeks, Alberta has seen an increase in reports of symptoms such as cough and fever in schools and daycares. We are monitoring the situation in schools closely. The province continues to transition back to longstanding practices to manage respiratory infections in general. That includes local public health officials notifying schools of outbreaks and giving them advice and support as needed. Transmission levels will fluctuate over time and between communities. We encourage Albertans to judge their risk at any point in time and take appropriate precautions. Also reminding people that at least for two of these respiratory viruses, influenza and COVID-19, we do have vaccines available. But obviously, things do seem to be worse this year. And there was the question of why. You know, there's COVID, there's influenza, there's RSV, and we're dealing with all of them at once. But why does it seem to be having such a big impact? Has something to do with the last two and a half years? Has just getting COVID affected people's immunity? Did wearing masks and social distancing and closing schools did that defer exposure to some of these diseases? Is that playing a factor? Well, it's something I think that, that uh, everybody's trying to better understand. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on kind of what we know at this point and what we still need to understand. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Colin Furness, infectious control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Dr. Furness, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So let's start with that question, and maybe there are many answers to that question, but why do things seem so worse now, this year?
0: I I think we are going to have to wait maybe a few years to have definitive answers to that. This is enormously complicated. It's really hard to study children. And this is unfolding in real time in a way that, yes, is really horrifying and also perplexing. Um, but we we know that RSV and, and flu are nothing new. We, we right. see them every year. And RSV is kind of in peak season right now. In a normal year, it would settle down um, within another month or two. Uh, and then flu often picks up. And, and, and so they do a little bit of a dance. COVID, on top of that, that is is also obviously a concern but uh, the idea that We've we've kept kids from getting sick for a couple of years, so people born in the last two years have you know not gotten not gotten these things for the first time. There's a little bit to that. Um, it's, I would call that immunity deferral. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're two years old and you didn't get RSV when you were one, you're getting it when you're two, along with other people when they're one. But we had a lot of RSV last year. We actually had quite a lot of it across the country. Yeah. Not every community got it the same, but we did. And so some of that got some of that got actually resolved then. And so that leaves us scratching our head saying, well, then why is this so bad? And you know, the the answer you're not going to like, no one's going to like the answer uh, or the the, the likely answer, which is we know that COVID-19 harms the immune system in adults. We know this. We know it does quite a lot of harm. We're still learning that. And there's multiple ways to harm the immune system. So again, it's complicated. Lots of viruses do this. Uh, It's a very successful tactic for a virus if it wants to infect a host to try and confound and misdirect and And blunt the immune system. We haven't studied it in kids, so we kind of have to look at this and say, well, we've got this data, we've got this phenomenon of kids getting way sicker than they should. We know a lot of them have had COVID, and we know that COVID is quite capable of harming the immune system. And connecting the dots tells me that we've got some impaired immunity. And I won't say that every kid has less immunity. I I actually doubt that's likely. Um, It's probably more likely that some kids have immune system harm. And it doesn't take too many for things to get really overwhelmed. So it's, it's not, I don't want to be catastrophic about this, but it's yet another reason to try and avoid getting COVID.
3: Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, because, you know, some of this gets caught up in some of these these culture wars over COVID and COVID policies and mandates and masking and restrictions and all of that. And so maybe we see some of those battle lines. But those who say now this is immunity dead or immunity deferral and those who say now this is immunity damage from COVID. I mean, unfortunately, might be both, right?
0: Well, that, And that's the thing. It, it, it is it is a bit of a mixing pot. I don't like the term immunity debt because it yeah. suggests that somehow we've weakened our immune systems by putting on masks. That's a fiction. I mean, yeah. I just want to be absolutely clear about that. We can be very certain the immune system does not work that way. You do not have to continually get sick in order to be healthy. And I don't want you to go home and eat some raw chicken to build up your immune system. It just, it's just a bad idea. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's not a muscle. Uh, the, the deferral was a good idea when COVID, when we had no vaccines and we had no treatments and and it was wreaking havoc. So, you know, in that sense, we haven't made missteps. Where where things, where the wheels have kind of come off the bus is, as you say, the sort of politicization or polarization of views on COVID. Uh, I've got to tell you, every time we learn something new about COVID, it's bad news. And the minimizers, those who who keep insisting that it's really just nothing, uh, their position is getting more and more precarious. And I kind of can't wait until it's untenable because I think people who minimize COVID and try and convince people that everything's fine and you should just ignore it are actually doing a lot of harm um i'm not even i don't even want to go to the point of you know do we need masks or not um it, I, I don't even want to go there we don't even need to go there i think to confront this issue which is we need to take this really seriously and we need to protect our kids just as two years ago we protected our elderly and i i'm really baffled why it was okay to protect grandma and grandpa two years ago uh, but little kids are just being left to their own devices i, I think that's that's really concerning
3: to me right well and i mean part of it is you know the the idea you know the kids are are resilient there's a resiliency when it comes to kids uh and also that kids get sick kids get these diseases and you know there's sort of that level of okay well that's inevitable or there's a level of of acceptance but what what gets left out uh, of those two assumptions or presumptions
0: I think you're right, and and, you know, a lot of the COVID minimizers, I've got to tell you, are pediatricians. I think they spend half their time or more reassuring terrified parents that everything's going to be fine, that the kids do bounce back. And that's one reason why we don't have a lot of pediatric ICU capacity, because kids typically don't need to be in an ICU. Kids don't usually die of disease. They don't need to be ventilated. This doesn't normally happen, so it doesn't take much. To push us into into a uh, pretty scary territory but the fact is there are some diseases that are really we're really glad we don't get anymore uh, measles wipes the immune system it creates immunity amnesia that was only discovered a few years ago and it was discovered because we started to notice that kids who'd gotten measles because they hadn't gotten vaccinated um, then started to get all kinds of other diseases that they shouldn't have get they shouldn't be getting and and so we, we were able to identify it that way and to me this this feels the same polio hardly harms anybody I mean really, really, a fraction of 1% have any symptoms at all, let alone permanent paralysis. But (laughs) there's enough of a scare around, gee, I don't wanna be paralyzed. I don't wanna take any chance. Uh, And and so we avoid polio, we avoid measles and and we avoid them by getting vaccinated. Why COVID is in a class of its own where we don't see it as being so serious in terms of the harms, I I think public messaging, I think we we got it wrong early on. And again, I I, I do have to place some blame with people who, especially physicians who minimize COVID. We should have been a lot more circumspect in terms of how we educate the public, how we talk about this. It's not a respiratory virus. It's a really serious, serious vascular neurotropic virus that wreaks havoc and harm all over the body. That's the way we need to talk about it. And I know that sounds um, like fear mongering, but the thing is COVID is actually scary and it's adaptive to be afraid of things that are scary. So we we, we really need to change the conversation. And if 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 we even still can, given that there's been so much discussion about how COVID is, is really not a big deal.
3: Right, and it's interesting to see how COVID has, has evolved and the impact that's having. Because as I understand, when it comes to kids, you know, infections that are upper respiratory, lower respiratory, do impact kids in different ways. And, and as COVID has evolved and sort of you know infects us differently, how has that changed the equation?
0: Well, you're, you're- well informed with that comment. Yes, COVID used to um, be able to make use of a particular enzyme that was uh, found deeper in the lungs, and that's where it was happiest. And kids don't, don't tend to have that same that same enzyme in the same place. So COVID in adults was, was hitting hard deep in the lungs. Uh, with Omicron, it's moved up the respiratory tract. So ironically, it started to behave more like a respiratory disease. That hits kids proportionately harder because they've got small airways. And so when those get inflamed, they have a hard time. breathing and much more so than adults so that's why yes the 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 evolution of covid has been to to rise up in the respiratory tract it it makes it far more effectively spread among kids and probably far more effectively spread period this this virus has gotten really good at spreading it's evolution has been quite shocking and and it's it's very adaptive and unfortunately kids are paying that price
3: so the COVID mutations we're tracking, when it comes to influenza, obviously, we, we do track those as well and, and try to get ahead of what, you know, what strain might be prevalent in any given year. A question about RSV, though, and, and I've seen this come up, whether RSV has mutated at all, whether it's somehow become more virulent, would we notice that? What are your thoughts on that?
0: So RSV, is a, it's an RNA virus, it will mutate. It's a big, ugly customer. I mean, it's got a gigantic genome, it's very complicated, and that makes it, I think, harder to study. I'm not a virologist, so I should right. be, be clear about that. But it's, uh, it's, if, if we were all virus sized, that would be like the big scary dog on the street that you don't want to encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, it does, it does mutate a lot. Viruses don't usually mutate to be more severe, they mutate to be more contagious. Right. So there's nothing, it doesn't, a virus is not gained, it doesn't gain anything by making someone severely ill. You actually, if you're a smart virus, you make people just ill enough to be coughing you out without actually isolating you in bed. Yeah. So it doesn't seem so likely that it's, it's mutated to be more severe, it, but to your question, if it has, would we know? No, not for a while. That goes in the category of it's gonna take a, it's gonna take a couple of years to look through this data and try and figure out what's been happening.
3: Now, in the meantime as we're, we're sort of in in the throes of all of this. Is there any light at the end of the tunnel here, in terms of you know this these or all of these viruses maybe sort of running out of steam, if you will? Are we likely to see this slow in the weeks ahead?
0: Uh, no, viruses are very they're very energetic. Uh, in fact, the more they spread, the more energy they have. Right, so the more you have, the more you get. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's we have to look at it as a runaway freight train rather than rather than something that might run out of gas, and that's. You know that's really unfortunate for for everybody. I think the 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 one tool that we could and should be using, and it's baffling to me why we're not, because it's not even a political thing. Is uh, air quality management, putting HEPA filters in, and devising air quality standards, and mandating those. Uh, there's no reason why we can't be doing that now, and that would be good for everything for all respiratory viruses, it would make everybody healthier. Improving air quality would be amazing. It would be expensive, there's no question. But the gain in productivity in terms of sick days not lost, I mean, it would be it would be really phenomenal. But to do that, we have to look ourselves in the mirror and say COVID is airborne and we have to repeat it and then we have to put it in policy. And that's something that no provincial government in the country has been willing to do. So that's, that's a huge problem. If we're not going to admit it's airborne, All we're left doing is wringing our hands and deciding that perhaps we shouldn't do masks because it's too politically dangerous, and there's nothing else. I don't think anyone ever got fired, shot, or unelected for plugging in a HEPA filter. So I think this is something that that we could do that doesn't actually threaten anyone's sense of identity, freedom, or anything else. Let's clean up the air. I I think that would be a big step forward.
3: Makes sense to me. And I I suppose it's also worth emphasizing that at least for two of these three respiratory illnesses, we, we do have vaccines available.
0: Yes. And the thing with flu vaccines, of course, is that they're not great Uh, for the same reason that the COVID vaccine isn't great. Both of them target a part of the virion, part of the virus, that mutates easily. Measles mutates like mad, but the same vaccine that you would have had when you were two years old is just as effective today because that vaccine targets a part of the virus that can't mutate. Mm -hmm. So we need better vaccines. For both of these, we need better vaccines, no question.
3: We'll leave it there. Dr. Furness, appreciate the insight. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon.
0: My pleasure. Thanks.
3: All the best. Dr. Colin Furness, uh, infection control epidemiologist, assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Forty-ish years ago, or almost exactly 40 years ago, uh, when the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was agreed to and implemented, it included uh, a section, uh, Section 33 to be exact, Uh, that uh, included what became known as the Notwithstanding Clause. Uh, The point at the time, I guess, was to give democratically elected governments uh, some final say over matters rather than leaving everything to the courts. So, for example, if a piece of legislation was deemed by the courts to be unconstitutional, to be a violation of charter rights, under certain circumstances, an elected government could say, notwithstanding that decision, this law will still stand. Because maybe, arguably, the, uh, the governments who brought in the laws are more accountable to the voters than the courts. But what we're left with then is the possibility that a government can introduce, pass an unconstitutional law, a law that violates charter rights, and then keep that law in place. Quebec has arguably done that twice now. Bill 21 and the issue of religious freedom and Bill 96, which deals with language rights. Ontario threatened and backed away from the use of the notwithstanding clause to impose a contract on education workers. They've rescinded that legislation. Now it sounds like there might still be an education strike next week, so maybe that's not all over and done with. So it's renewed the debate around whether that clause should exist or whether we need some way of discouraging or even preventing governments from using it. There's what's maybe uh, known as the nuclear option here, at least in terms of uh, dealing with provinces, disallowance. You're not familiar with disallowance. It it basically is like a nuclear option. A province passes a law, well, the feds can come along and basically nuke it. (laughs) It's gone. It's done. It doesn't exist. We've disallowed it. How far down this path do we need to go? Or is our status quo more or less fine? An interesting piece on all of this up at Conversation.com. Joining us uh, for some further conversation about it, one of the authors, uh, Professor Kerry Frock, Associate Professor of the Faculty of Law at the University of New Brunswick. Professor Frock, great to have you with us here. Hi there. Uh, yeah, I mean, the notwithstanding clause has existed as noted for 40 years, but certainly there's been quite an intense debate around it this year. Why do you suspect that is?
2: Well, it seems like we're undergoing a a political and and maybe a cultural change that um, invoking the the notwithstanding clause um, isn't um, seen as taboo anymore. It seems to be more part of of the discourse um, that uh, premiers are saying, well, we can pass a law and um, we can do it notwithstanding certain rights because we're going to invoke uh, Section 33 of the Charter, which permits uh, laws to stand. And even if they violate um, sections 2 to 7 to 15 so that includes some of our most fundamental rights um, freedom of association freedom of expression equality um, those kinds of very fundamental rights so way back in the day when the notwithstanding clause um, was um, first put into the Charter um, there is a a few reasons for it Um, the You know, as you kind of said in your uh, introduction, one reason was that, um, you know, uh, people like Peter Lougheed, other premiers, recognize that they're giving the judges a heck of a lot of power um, once the charter kicks in. Um, Therefore, you know, judges are people like anyone else. Sometimes they get things wrong. So uh, perhaps there's, uh, you know, a a need for an escape valve in case judges do get it wrong. Um, Then uh, legislation can be enacted essentially to to bypass um, that court decision. Um, other people um, or other reasons were, um, you know, there's lots of charter decisions that will get into policy issues. Um, Maybe we want to kind of uh, have uh, a little bit of uh, legislative supremacy left in our constitutional order. So those are the kinds of uh, things that people were talking about way back in 1981 and 82. Um, But the way that it's being Talked about now is we we just don't have to abide by the charter um, because we can invoke the notwithstanding clause. So that's a, a real big change in how we how politicians are talking about it and how we're talking about it in you know in public discourse. Um, you know, um, you and I and and your listeners.
3: All right, because the charter just spells out the parameters for the use of the notwithstanding clause. It doesn't say use it as a last resort. It doesn't say only use it under certain circumstances. It doesn't say, you know, be really careful. Like there's none of that in the charter. I guess there's sort of the convention and tradition that have emerged around this. But I mean, I don't know. Is, is, Is there any clear direction to provinces about the idea of using it only in rare circumstances?
2: Um, no, there isn't. And I guess the the reason why is everyone thought it, it would go without saying that it should be used as a last resort because at the time, and it still is the case, the, the charter is, is wildly popular. Um, it, it was thought that um, signifying um, that you are using the notwithstanding clause um, would kind of bring about, um, uh, you know, the, the idea that you're violating rights and, and bring that to the public's attention. And if you were doing that wrongly, you would suffer at the ballot box. And that was thought to be, uh, a sufficient, uh, deterrent, um, from, uh, from using it, um, unadvisedly. So, um, the, the court, uh, uh, Supreme Court in a case called Ford and Quebec, um, which was, um, you know, in, in the 80s, in 1988, um, basically said, yeah, that's the only real restraint other than the fact that if you're going to use the clause, you have to specify that in legislation and you have to specify what um, rights um, you you are bypassing. But other than that form requirement, there's there's very little uh, constraints on procession or the or the feds that parliament can use the notwithstanding clause too although they never have um there's there's very little constraint so we've got to the
3: point where you know some are wondering whether this all needs to change either eliminating section 33 altogether which would be a tall order or for the federal government to use that that power of disallowance to basically quash any of these laws that would invoke the notwithstanding clause that seems like a whole other can of worms is is the cure worse than the disease
2: For our constitutional democracy, the 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 feds using the power of disallowance, it probably um, is is a worse idea. And it's fascinating when you look at the history of the power of disallowance. It's you know it it specifies that right in our Constitution Act of 1867 that the Governor General taking um, instruction from the the federal government. Can disallow um, provincial legislation, but it hasn't been used since 1943. Um, and um, one uh, significant case comes out of Alberta. Actually, um, the Socreds in the early 30s um, passed a bunch of laws um, dealing with banking, saying that you couldn't take the government, the provincial government, to court um, for violating the constitution, and um, the the feds having none of that, disallowed those acts, and so um, it, the Supreme Court um, looked at that case on a reference and said, yes, um, you know, the federal power of disallowance is alive and well. Um, But since that time, there's, you know, it's fallen into disuse. A number of, you know, nerdy constitutionalists like me like to debate whether there's something called a a constitutional convention that it won't be used, essentially an agreement between the players that it'll never be used, or whether it's still a live option. So rather than getting into that rat's nest and really angering the provinces, um, me and Professor Mathis wrote our opinion piece saying don't um, use that option um, but um, seek a reference to the court and see if it wants to um, put some more uh, you know guidelines um, to provinces um, and the federal government when they want to use the notwithstanding clause Um, for instance it seems um, just sticking a reference to the notwithstanding clause into legislation um, you know we're all awash in you know an information overload um, it may be time to require the government t- that wants to invoke the clause um, to um, publicize more their use of the notwithstanding clause before um, actually pulling the pin um, because that was what um, was supposed to be done is that um, citizens of the province or you know the jurisdiction that the law was uh, going to apply to had to have the opportunity to debate and decide whether it was a, a good use of it or not.
3: Very interesting. We'll see where this all goes from here. Much more is mentioned at theconversation.com. Kerry Frock, thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate the insight.
2: Thanks very much.
3: All the best. Kerry uh, Frock is an associate professor of the Faculty of Law at the University of New Brunswick. So kind of a primer on, you know, how the notwithstanding clause came to be and some of the expectations around it. But otherwise, I mean, the chart is pretty clear. This is what it is, this is how it works. This is where it applies. That's it. There's no but-be-careful provision or only use it under, you know, the rarest of circumstances. There's none of that there. So technically, Ontario using it or Quebec using it, they're not doing anything wrong. They're not doing anything unconstitutional. So if we have a problem with that, maybe it's more about revisiting this in the Charter, changing it or eliminating it. But disallowance? Holy crap. That would be a mess. Can you imagine Even on the most innocent piece of legislation, the idea the federal government would come in and declare a provincial law to be null and void, to use that power. I mean, imagine if it was used in Alberta. Like, I don't know how serious a a separatist movement exists here, but if the federal government, especially this federal government, used that power to overrule the Alberta legislature and basically nuke uh, provincial law. My goodness, that would change in a hurry. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.